If you open your Bibles to Genesis 22, 20, Genesis 22, verse 20, it's on page 19 of the Red Pew Bible. As we begin this morning, I want to uh, pose an important question. Um, I know you didn't come this morning to be quizzed, and nevertheless, I'm going to quiz you. I'm going to give you a little test. So, we all had an extra hour of sleep last night. Our brains are particularly well uh, equipped this morning to handle this pop quiz. So let me ask you this question. What is the chief end of man? Ah, a room full of Presbyterians are like, okay, good, I know this one. I can answer this one. This is an easy one. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So let me ask some corollary questions, some follow-up questions. Do you believe that if we are to glorify God forever, that we ought to glorify him in our youth? Ecclesiastes 12.1, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Should we glorify God in our marriages? Ephesians 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now listen to Paul's next comment. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Our marriages are to indicate Christ and his church. So should we glorify God in our marriages? What about in parenting and child rearing? Should we glorify God there? Psalm 78, 4, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and of his might and the wonders that he has done. What about in our jobs? Should we glorify God in our jobs if we are to glorify him forever? Ephesians 5, 22, servants obey your masters with fear and trembling as unto Christ. Is there anything we humans do which ought not be done to the glory of God? Well, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this. So, whatever, so, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what about tending to our dead? Should we tend to our dead, to the glory of God? And if so, what might that look like? What does it mean to glorify God in the midst of death? What is the chief end of man? Well, what was the chief end of Abraham? Was it not to glorify God in everything he did forever? After Abraham willingly took Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah, it is now clear that his heart is set upon the glory of God. Then should we not take lessons from the manner in which he cares for Sarah at her death? Let's attend ourselves to the account of Sarah's death. <clears throat> I begin in Genesis 22:20, 20, and I will read through the end of chapter 23. The events of Genesis 23 occur some 20 or so years after the uh, Isaac on Mount Moriah incident. So 
So please follow along as I read. I will remind you that here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And that means that if we want to rightly acknowledge God, even in the face of death, if we want to glorify him, even in the way we handle our dead, then we must know his word. Hear now the word of Almighty God. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, Nahor, I'm sorry, and, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rima, bore Teba, Geham, Tahash, and Makkah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field 
and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's seek his guidance in understanding it. Lord, it is a difficult thing to consider death, and yet we want to consider it in a way that honors you, that pleases you, that recognizes your sovereignty over it. More than that, that recognizes your defeat of it. Let us consider carefully this passage that we might have a biblical, godly view of death, that we might handle it in a way that glorifies you. We seek this in our lives by the power of Christ within us and through his name. Amen. The loss of a spouse is a very traumatic event, perhaps the most traumatic event that most of us will ever face. And we may pick up and move on with our life. The pain of that loss may dull over time, but we will never put it fully behind us. Nor should we. We ought not move on easily as if nothing happened. Quite the contrary, something catastrophic has happened. Physical death is the final and ultimate testimony to the terrible and accursed state of affairs upon this fallen earth. Death reigns. And though the defeat of death is today not merely hypothetical, but is assured, still, until such time as Christ puts death to death, it rain, it remains a tragic thing. The tragedy is compounded when the single most important relationship in our life is torn from us by that death. We ought to grieve. It ought to be difficult. Dear friend, if you have lost a loved one, particularly a spouse, there's no shame in the pain. There's no need to hide your grief, no value in pretending the hurt is not there. You're not wrong to feel that pain. It is not a lack of faith on your part to be sad. Quite the opposite. Trying to be strong in the face of death, trying to overcome its sting on your own, that's not faith. What did Christ say to Paul when he was weak in the face of difficulty? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So so let us make Paul's response our own response. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In the face of mankind's greatest enemy, let your weakness show so that Christ's strength will prevail. Weep, mourn, grieve, hurt. And why is the loss of a spouse so particularly painful? Well, it violates the very nature of our creation in two significant ways. Remember, 
It was not good for the man to be alone, and death was never supposed to be a part of this world. We were created to be one with another person, and we were created to live in that oneness forever. I remember the very first time I tried to separate two boards, two pieces of lumber that had been glued together. Much to my surprise, they did not split along the glue joint. On the contrary, both boards splintered horribly. What I did not understand is that where the glue had seeped into the grain of the wood, the glue and the wood together were stronger than either was by itself. So it is with marriage. When we are bound to another person, we seep into one another. We become part of one another. We strengthen one another. We are bound to them. And when that is torn apart, we splinter. A portion of us is ripped off and taken to the grave with them. And bits of them are left with us. And the longer you've been married, the more time that glue has had to seep into the lumber, the more splintering there will be. Death does not take two people and make them one. It takes one and rips them into two. We should grieve. We should mourn. It should be difficult. Now, by God's grace, over time, there can be healing. But we will never be returned to what we were before. The oneness we had with that person should and did change us forever. Death of a spouse is a double disaster. And so Abraham wept. He didn't say, hey, let's put the fun back in funeral and make this a life celebration. He wept. He grieved. He mourned. Now, can you imagine someone saying, hey, Abe, don't you know we don't grieve like those who have no hope? Let's be clear. Abraham understood that truth far better than most American Christians do. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonian Christians and said, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, he was not addressing differences in degree, but in kind. Paul was not saying we do not grieve as much as those who have no hope. Far from it. In fact, if the Christian life has been lived well, lived with wisdom, if it's lived in true love, then our grief is more pronounced and severe and difficult. For we will have lost the relationship that more closely resembled God's original design for humanity. It is the well-lived Christian marriage in which the two achieve some degree of oneness. And so the loss of a spouse is more severe for the faithful Christian. It is in the wisely lived Christian life 
that we fellowship more deeply and friends become true brothers and sisters in the Lord. And our grief is more pronounced. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. That describes not the depth or severity of our grief, but the nature of our grief. It is not a distinction of quantity, but of quality. It is the atheist and the pagan who have learned to be dismissive of death. It is they who have no hope who say, que sera, that's the way of life. Death's just a normal part of this world. No point in grieving over it. Can't do anything about it. But that's resignation and despair, not victory. They stand empty-handed in the face of death and must either dismiss it and make light of staring into those cold eyes of death, or they must come to grips with the true meaning and consequence of death. We throw this phrase around fairly casually of late, but confronting death is perhaps the truest and deepest existential crisis any human can have. Thus, the atheist is resigned to simply trying to make the best of it. But they cannot process the emotions and deep-seated sense that there should be more, and so they become dismissive of it, making light of it. We do not grieve like that. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Not because we grieve less, because we don't grieve in a dismissive, offhanded way. And yet, sadly, an increasing number of Christians want to grieve exactly like those who have no hope. Funerals used to fall on the third day after death. But now we schedule them for convenience, as if death was not, by definition, a disruption to life. Death is the ultimate disruption to our lives. Maybe, maybe it's appropriate to miss a day of work to contemplate that disruption of life. We once cried and wept and even fainted casket side. We were utterly somber at the graveside interment, but we rarely attend the graveside anymore while encouraging one another with the exact language of those who have no hope. Let's make this a life celebration. Before we leave behind this question of grieving and weeping versus making little of death, let me note one other important consideration. Dear Christian. If death is to be dismissed as a small thing, as no big deal, as just a normal part of life, if death is minimized, then is not the victory of Christ over death also minimized? If what he has defeated is no big deal, then his victory is no big deal. Our failure to mourn and grieve at death does not glorify Christ. Christ wept at the death of Lazarus. It is when we recognize how serious death is 
that we become more amazed at the victory of Christ over it. We do not testify to our unsaved loved ones how much they need Christ if at the death of our loved ones we make little of what is really happening. If death is the ultimate existential experience for the human being, then it would be best if it truly confronted each of us. So that when we are faced with death, we are amazed that there is a hope of victory over death. Even as Abraham's handling of Sarah's death frees us to mourn and to grieve and to weep, it also guides us into thinking about death the right way. Now, it gets there a little strangely. It kind of backs into it. But to help us understand, I'm going to ask you to do this. Imagine my death. Where would I be buried? If I were to die this afternoon, where would I be interred? You see, I have lived, and I think most of you know this, I have lived in Illinois, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Maryland. And I have a lot of wonderful childhood memories of Wisconsin and all the time I spent vacationing, fishing, hiking there. So where of all those places would I be buried? There's really only two that are in serious consideration. Michigan and Maryland. Maryland because it's where I live. It's my home. It's the place to which God has called me to do ministry. Michigan, because it is the land of my ancestors and family. And in fact, when you think about the draw of our ancestors and family, I think most of us would be a little surprised if I was buried anywhere other than Michigan. And we'd have to wrestle with this. What happened? Was Scott estranged from his family? Was he so enamored with Maryland that he was willing to put his family aside? Or is there some combination of both? Our resting place is a statement about our lives. Abraham teaches us that it should also be a statement about our afterlives. Our resting place is a statement about our lives, but Abraham teaches us that it should be a statement about our afterlives. You see, the whole middle section of chapter 23 isn't really about Sarah's death at all. The first two verses are, the last two verses are, but the middle is all about Abraham's acquisition of a place to bury her. Verses 3 through 18 contain a great deal that is fascinating, and we could spend a lot of time delving into the technicalities of it all, but I don't know how profitable that would be this morning. So let me instead try to sum up for you what is going on in verses 3 to 18. All of the references there, all the back and forth between Abraham and the Hittites testifies to the historical reality of this account. This is how transactions occurred in that time and place. By the way, in that place today, they can still go down very much like this. All the references to the witnesses, those who heard, those who saw, those who were at the gates of the city. 
the mention of the caves, the mention of the field, the mention of all the trees. All of this, archaeology shows us, is a detailed account that establishes one simple fact. Abraham negotiated an above board, fully legal, completely normal property acquisition. Everything about this screams authentic, legal, binding. That's the point of Moses giving us all those details in the middle. So that we will not think that this land did not fully belong to Abraham. It was his. Notice he even doesn't haggle over the price. He readily accepts the 400 shekels of silver. By the way, we have no idea if that's a fair price or not. It's almost impossible to take ancient value and bring it into our modern world. When you consider the fact that back then, it was a big deal to be worth your salt, and today we take things with a grain of salt, the value of salt has radically changed over the last 4,000 years. We don't know how to value this land. But the point is he doesn't haggle over it. He doesn't want there to be anyone who can say, well, you cheated uh, Ephron out of that land. The price that Ephron names is the price Abraham gives so that every witness will say, someday if Ephron tries to make a claim, they will say, no, 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 no. You got exactly what you asked for the land. It's Abraham's. You see, it was important to Abraham that he have a place that was his to bury his dead. Now, the scholars that I've read, the commentaries that I've looked at, they all struggle with what to do with that end of chapter 22 that we read. I'm going to guess some of you are a little bewildered as to why I didn't include that last week, and I did tack it on to the beginning of this week. And you're sitting there going, that's just a weird comment there. These note about uh, uh, what's been going on back in Haran with Nahor, Abraham's brother. Remember, Abraham and Sarah are half-brother and sister, so this is also Sarah's family. Okay? Why is that there? A moment ago, I asked you to imagine my death. Let me put it into some context. Metro Detroit is the place where I and Becky were married. We lived there for a long time. Our two oldest children still reside there. Becky's parents live there. Becky's brother and his wife and their three children live there. My brother and his wife, and well, now one child's moved out of the house, but three are still living with him there. And all of a sudden, as you begin to build this case for all of the family ties in Metro Detroit, then it becomes even more surprising if I were buried anywhere else. That's the point. That's why 22 closes the way it does. That's why this information about what's going on back home in their family is here. Because it puts in right next to you, there's this juxtaposition of the draw to the ancestry, that, that pull to go back home. And Abraham says, never. 
I will not go back. I have staked my whole life on the promises of God. And I will bury my dead on the promises of God. He has promised me and my children this land. If Sarah is to be born among her, uh, buried among her family, then she must be buried here in Canaan. If Sarah is to reside, to rest for a time, not her final resting, let's be careful not to use that language in death. If Sarah is to rest for a time, she is to rest among her family. And I believe God is going to establish them here. We should attend to our dead with an eye to the future. It's the pagan, it's the atheist who must make a life celebration because they have no future to look forward to. They are forced to look back. Now, it's not inappropriate to look back. Eulogies have a place. They're fitting at a funeral. But if it's only about the past, it belies the fact that we have no hope for the future. Abraham's consideration of where to bury his dead was a future-looking, forward-looking, hope-driven, faith-filled decision. God made me a promise. I believe he's going to keep that promise, and I'm going to bury my dead here. How do we hear it in our New Testament reading? How did it come through with the author of Hebrews? Verse 13, if you want to flip back in the bulletin there, verse 13, Hebrews 11. These all died in faith. Abraham and Sarah are the last who are named among these. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. He did not have offspring to number the, like the stars yet. Nor did he have possession of the land yet not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's exactly what Abraham says to the Hittites. I am a foreigner and a sojourner among you. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. The end of chapter 22 makes the point that that was in their heads to think about the return to Haran. And he does not do it. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. You see, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn with the future clearly in view. We bury our dead to the glory of God and the hope of his promises being fulfilled. Abraham buried Sarah in all confidence that his descendants would control the land where she was laid. Even in his grief, he is looking forward to the promises of God. Sarah was not in her final resting place. She was laid to rest, but it was a rest that would be temporary. Long, maybe by our standards, temporary nevertheless. She was laid to rest with the future squarely in view. Do we lay our loved ones in the grave with the future squarely in view? We ought to mourn death 
those of us who understand that it is unnatural, that it is a serious affront to the nature of our creation, we should grieve death, but not as those who have no hope. We should mourn instead with the future in view. We should mourn and grieve and weep and then lay our dead to rest while they await the final resurrection and the full promises of God achieved in Christ Jesus. Abraham shows us that it is right and good to weep, to mourn for our dead. And Abraham shows us to consider our de- to, to consider our dead with an eye upon the future, confident that God will uphold his promises. And the account of Abraham offers at least one other lesson of some import to us. And while the account does not teach on the next subject per se, it does assume it. This passage and all the rest of the scriptures assumes burial. I've talked a great deal about the place of Sarah's burial, but we need also to consider the fact that she was buried. Till very recently, no Christian minister would have even considered including this subject in the preaching of this or any other passage. And yet, unchristian, neo-pagan practices have so infiltrated the church that it is incumbent upon ministers today to address this reality. Sarah was buried due in a large part to the fact that the ministers of Christ Church have been so silent on the subject that it has so deeply infiltrated the church. And yet it needs to be addressed. Those of us who are the shepherds of God's flock have allowed the practices and beliefs of our unchristian society to heavily influence one of the most sacred and meaningful rites of our lives, the care of our dead. Cremation is out of accord with our Christian faith. We must not miss that fact. Cremation is out of accord with our Christian faith. Now, extensive and persuasive arguments can be put forth on the subject. There is the exegetical argument. Basically, what do the scriptures say on the subject? Among the people of God, there are only three recorded cremations in the scriptures. The first is that of Achan. Remember the guy who stole things at Jericho, led to the downfall at Ai? He was taken outside the camp, stoned to death, and his body burned. A second cremation occurs during uh, 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 King Josiah's Reformation when he Uh, executes and then burns the bodies of all the false priests that had infiltrated God's people. The third is that of the body of King Saul. There's a great deal of debate, and sometime else I can talk to you about the debate around the the death of the the burial, the cremation of King Saul. But it is noted there, as opposed to the other two examples, that his bones were then taken back and buried. So when we see cremation among God's people, it is generally with regard to those who are dishonored, who are punished, who are outcasts. The consistent testimony of the rest of Scripture is to bury them. 
Abraham buried Seth. His children will bury him. King David was buried and gathered to his fathers. On down the list. Can you imagine if our Lord Jesus had been cremated? He was entombed. He was buried. And it should not be lost that when Moses dies in the presence of God on the mountain, Deuteronomy notes that God buried him. The consistent testimony of the scriptures is that God's people buried their dead. The language of the scriptures, when Paul talks about the, the dead being asleep, is inconsistent with cremation, but it fits perfectly with burial. The exegetical argument is persuasive. We could make a second argument, um, the one that basically that Abraham makes for Sarah, an eschatological argument, a forward-looking argument. And since I already spent a little time on that, I won't go back through it in great detail. But laying the dead to rest, burial or entombment, assumes that they will need those bodies again someday. Laying the dead to rest looks forward to the certain hope of the resurrection. At best, cremation assumes that the resurrection is so far into the future that the body was going to uh, be dust anyway, so we might as well hasten the process. But that denies the imminent return of Christ. We say we believe he can return at any moment. But if we're cremating our dead, it suggests that we don't really believe that at all. The difference between letting God turn a body to dust and you hastening the process is the difference between someone dying and someone being euthanized. There's a historical argument that could be made that across the ages from Abraham on down to the present day until just about 50 years ago, cremation was unheard of in Christian churches. And I understand that thousands of martyrs were burned at the stake. Thousands upon thousands of believing soldiers were trampled into the mud in history's wars. But those, again, are the act and the decision of God and his sovereignty to allow that to happen, not us actively being uh, disregarding the body. But let me... I, and all of those arguments, we could go into far more detail. But let me say this. I stand before you today as one who not that long ago saw cremation as an acceptable alternative. Close members of my family have been cremated, and I did little to try to persuade them otherwise. And in fact, for the most part, I was going along with it like, sure, no problem. I share that with you for two reasons. First, all of us get important things wrong in this life. That does not preclude us from the grace of God in Christ. In fact, it's precisely because we get these things wrong that we need the grace of God in Christ. So let me start by saying, if cremation has been a part of your life, your family, your dead, I'm not saying there is no hope. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that you, you know, got to fall down and wail for God's grace covers all of our sin. And yet because of grace, 
we desire to get these things right. And the second reason I tell you that it wasn't all that long ago that I myself was okay with cremation was to share the argument that was most persuasive for me. The argument that really tipped my thinking in the other direction. In addition to the exegetical, eschatological, and historical arguments, let me slow down a bit and share the theological argument. You know, not all that long ago I would have said cremation, burial, who cares? It just doesn't matter. It's my body. It's not me. Many of us have said that. We've stood casket side when someone came up and said, that's not grandma. Grandma's not there. And there's where we are theologically in error. There's where I was theologically in error. That is grandma. My body is me. And I am my body. I was closely involved in the pre-death arrangements being made for a dying man who said, as, I, as I've heard many times, and I suspect you have as well, the dying man said this, I don't care what you do with my body. I won't be there. It's not me. I'm going to be moving on to glory. Now, if he meant moving on to experience the glory of Christ, yes. But I'm pretty sure having spoken with him at some length, he didn't mean that. Many of us as Christians make the mistake of equating our death to our glorification. We speak of it as a passage, a door, a gate by which we will enter into our glorification. Yes, we will enter into the glory of Christ, but we will not yet be fully glorified. The consistent message of the scriptures, the hope of the Christian faith is not our death. It is our bodily resurrection. We cling to the hope of a bodily resurrection. You see, death tears apart what we are. We are psychophysical beings, material and immaterial, spiritual and physical. God made us that way. To discount one or the other is to deny the nature of our creation. You know, it was the ancient Greeks who regarded the physical world as inherently evil and the non-physical world as inherently good, and therefore they looked at death as the shedding of the physical and the attainment of something better. For them, death was the transition from the physical to the immaterial, from the evil to the good. But the Bible is clear. God created us to be both material and immaterial, both spiritual and physical. Death is not freedom from the physical. It is not an ascendancy to something better. It is not our glorification. It is death. It is a tearing asunder of what we were supposed to be. It is only when our bodies and souls are reunited and returned to this earth that we might be said to be in our glory. 
Until then, we reside in an intermediate state, which is, yes, better than this earth, but still not the fulfillment of all we were created to be. It's only in the resurrection will we be glorified and made perfect, morally and existentially perfect. The loved ones I've lost, father, grandparents, aunts, and uncles, have not entered their glory. The believers among them are in the presence of Christ's glory, to be sure, but they are awaiting their glorification. So we see that the separation of the soul and body is not glory. It is not the goal. But we need to return casket side and address the question, is that grandma lying there? Well, for the sake of the argument I'm about to make, let's make it a little less personal. Let's set grandma aside for a moment and just ask this question. Is that John Doe lying there? Or is that merely John Doe's body? Paul writes to the Corinthians and makes this argument. He says that if you unite your body to a prostitute, you unite Christ to a prostitute. Now, how is that possible if the body isn't really us? If we're gone when our body lies in the casket, if we are only then our souls, how can it be true that uniting our body to a prostitute unites Christ to a prostitute? For if we are not our bodies, if we are but only our souls, then it is our soul that is united to Christ and not our body at all. So the union of our body with a prostitute would not be the union of Christ with a prostitute. For those are two distinct things. But Paul says when you unite your body with a prostitute, you unite Christ with a prostitute. So is the John merely having a physical relationship? Now, none of us, I imagine, would say that sex for money, hired sex, begins to even approach the oneness that God intended for man and woman. But neither will we go so far as to say that it's nothing at all, and it is inconsequential. You see, if that man is a Christian, even in the midst of his sin, Paul says he's uniting Christ to a prostitute. Clearly, Paul saw our bodies as integral to our person so that the union of the one with a prostitute would bring Christ into disrepute. Let me try a different approach. The husband who has an affair will try to smooth things over with the following foolishness. Honey, it, it didn't mean anything. It was, it was merely sexual. There was really nothing between us. He is saying, in essence, that since the other woman and he had no spiritual connection, no psychological chemistry, the mere act of their joining their bodies didn't really mean anything. Now, Tell me two things. First, has that explanation ever gone over well? Has any wife ever heard that argument and dabbed her eyes and oh, sucked it up and kind of recomposed herself and said, oh, now I understand. I misunderstood. I'm so sorry. I thought it was something more. No, we're good. We're good. I made some soup for dinner. Would you like any? 
She throws the soup at him. That has never been an acceptable response, and we know why. And all we have to do is ask, if the shoe were on the other foot, would he accept it? Is If his wife was having a merely physical relationship, would he be okay with it? We are our bodies. Our bodies are us. God created us to be body and soul, material and immaterial. To treat the body as though it is a, a mere temporary carrying device. You know, the lunch meat you get, it's got the little plastic container there. You take, eat all the lunch meat up. You can keep the container and reuse it for something else. You can throw it away. It's disposable. It's just a, 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 a mode of keeping the meat fresh for a time. When we treat our bodies like that, we're denying the truth of how we were created. Now, go back to casket side. From this point forward, do not ask yourself what should be done with grandma's body. Ask yourself instead what should be done with grandma. It's amazing the people who decide to be cremated who say it's no big deal, I'm not there anyway, it's just my body, they all have specific instructions about where the ashes are to be spread. They belie the fact that they understand that it matters. The manner in which Abraham addressed Sarah's death teaches us a great deal about glorifying God even in death. He mourned and wept, not grieving as those who have no hope, but grieving as one who truly understood the nature of death. He sought to bury her in a place that looked to the promises of God instead of looking to the past. And he buried her, caring not for her body, but caring for Abraham did not grieve as those who have no hope. We must not either. Death is not just a natural part of life, as some say. Let's not mourn. Let's make this a life celebration, many counsel. But such suppression of grief is humanity's collective effort to take the sting out of death. Brothers and sisters, our platitudes, bromides, and banalities cannot take the sting out of death. Only Jesus can do that. It was when Paul recounts the power of Christ's resurrection that he mockingly asks, Where, O death, is your sting? It's in light of the resurrection, not Christ's death and transformation into the next life, but in Christ's resurrection and return to this world that, that Paul sees the defeat of death. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? It's not taken away by making light of death or making little of death. It's taken away by Christ's victory over death. That's why Abraham did not mourn as those who have no hope. Let's pray. Lord, let us handle even death in a way that pleases you, glorifies you, honors you, speaks to what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, our Savior. And as we consider in a moment his table, 
we ask that we would understand all that has been done for us in him and all the hope we have through him. We pray this in his name. Amen.